I'd like to turn to tonight's passage, which is Hebrews chapter 1, which can be found in page 1187, 1187. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 5, page 1187. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And I'm just going to pray before I begin to preach. Heavenly Father, thank you for your precious word. And thank you for your precious son. And Lord, pray that he may be exalted and magnified, portrayed as he truly is in scripture. Lord, please, may your Holy Spirit help me as I seek to teach your word faithfully and accurately and in the power of the Spirit. And Lord, would he do much good, would the Word do much good to us, that we may see our Saviour more clearly, that we may love him more and be more like him. And for those who never knew Jesus before, may today, through the proclamation of your Word, be the first day that they know him. Lord, we pray for your assistance and your help now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, as you gathered, I've been trying to preach for a book, and that book happens to be the book of Hebrews. And last week I preached through the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And something you'll notice about the book of Hebrews, and especially in this passage, is that it quotes a lot of the Old Testament. And the purpose of this is to remind the original Jewish audience that the Jewish religion and the Old Testament scriptures find their ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one that they have been waiting for, the promised Messiah. 
Now he's appeared in the flesh, he's died on the cross, and he's ascended into glory. But, as said before, whilst living on this earth, believers face free obstacles to stay faithful to Jesus Christ. And they, I, help, I tried to categorize them in all the essays to help them to be more memorable. Things like sin, the temptation and the desire to go back to sinful lifestyles because it, it's an appeal back to our old nature. Shame. Being a Christian is very difficult, not only today, but especially back in those days where they're actively ridiculed and persecuted. And suffering, not just the suffering that people face day to day, but the suffering on top as a Christian. And it's these kind of things that stop a Christian from carrying on with Christ and turning back. And specifically in the book of Hebrews, it's the danger of turning back to the less embarrassing Jewish religion and the writer of the Hebrews is saying that since Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures, it is absurd and dangerous to go back to the Jewish religion. And so it's his aim in the entire book to show them why Jesus is worth following. Now in today's passage, we're compelled to focus on the theme of the sonship of Jesus. It's, in the Christian church, we know that Jesus is the Son of God, God's Son. But I think it could be helpful to describe and to really dig down into what that means. And there's few passages in scripture that help us to understand what it means that Jesus is God's son in this passage. And so what do I mean by the sonship of Christ? What does it mean for Jesus to be the son of God? It means that there is no one else who is like or knows God, the father, like Jesus Christ. And it's my aim tonight to show that from the text, that no one else in all of history is like, in terms of nature and character, God the Father, as well as no one is like and knows God in a personal way, like Jesus Christ. And so we begin. If we look at verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So this is a direct reference from Psalm 2, which you read earlier in the service. And this is a messianic psalm, i.e. a psalm that predicts the coming of God's chosen king. So God has chosen a king back in this time where the psalms were written, that he would rule and reign over his people. And that despite all the joining together of the world's forces in enmity against God's son, God's son would crush them and defeat them and establish his rule and reign, despite all human opposition. So the writer here uses a form of logical argument. I'll give you the Latin term, but I'll explain what it means. It's called reductio ad absurdum. But basically, he's trying to argue that this refers to the son because the alternative is absurd. So I guess a common example is if you're in hospital and you get phoned as a doctor that there's a problem with a pregnancy, you don't need to ask what sex the patient is because only females get pregnant and the alternative is absurd. So if we apply that principle to this passage, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Did angels ever get God's special blessing anywhere in scripture? Were any angels deemed to be God's son in scripture? No, 
This can only be referring to Jesus. And what's so special about being the son, a position of sonship when it relates to God? Well, it's, it's this. It's that the son has a unique, intimate, and special knowledge and relationship with the father. No one else can have that. That is exclusively reserved to the son. No one can know as closely and as for all infinite time the father as the son does. And such, no one can ever reveal God the Father to people like Jesus the Son can, because only he knows God the Father intimately and for all time. Are any angels the object of the Father's special love, as it says here? No. It's Jesus alone in Scripture that God specifically says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Nowhere else in Scripture does it ever say that anyone else, any other object, has God's special love like the Son. And the wondrous thing, actually, is not only is this said about Christ, but as we read earlier, that if one is a Christian, they are in Christ. We are united with Christ and part of his body. And if you are in Christ as a Christian, then you, by virtue, by merit of being in Christ, are the object of God's special love. You need to meditate on that because that is something special that God says about no other creature but Christ. But by virtue of being in Christ, you get that special love from God. Second part of verse 5. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Here God declares authoritatively that he is Jesus' father. You see the force of the the text. I will be to him a father. As in, that is forceful and authoritative. This is a reference, an allusion to 2 Samuel 7.14. God the Father definitively says that Jesus, he is Jesus' father, and that Jesus is his son. And there's no room for doubt. There's, the words here are direct, authoritative, and not to be minced. This is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that God gave to David, that one who had come down his line would reign forever on his throne. That is Jesus, and there is no mincing the words about it. So, no one else can match the kind of relationship to God the Father like Jesus. Jesus is God's Son who has known him intimately and deeply for all eternity, and no one else. Another aspect of the sonship of Jesus is Jesus' worthiness of being worshipped. And we'll have a look at verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. This is taken from Deuteronomy 32, 43. And it's a clear reference to the Lord claiming victory and worship after defeating and conquering all his enemies. And here, Jesus is being referred to as the firstborn. And we do need to address this issue because sometimes people use this verse out of context when they say that this is proof that Jesus was a creature created by God and therefore not God himself. I think that is a complete misunderstanding of this text and heresy, denying the deity of Christ. You see later on in the passage that Jesus' rule and reign are eternal. That can only be referring to God. And that we've just read from John 17 that Jesus definitively says that he and the Father are one. You cannot say that unless Jesus is God. 
So those who would use this text to say that Jesus is a creature and is created and therefore not God are misusing the text and we need to understand it in a right way. So what does the text mean by saying that Jesus is the firstborn? The Greek word is prototokos. And if you know your Greek, the word protos means first. And it's used again, this particular Greek word, which is the original manuscript, in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, where Jesus is referred yet again as the firstborn. And what does he mean? What is is Jesus being referred to in that text? It's being referred to as what Christians will be like in the new creation. So Jesus is our forerunner. He is our founder of the faith, the one we are going to be like in the new creation. It's got nothing to do with Jesus requiring to be born to exist. It's not like the rest of mankind who requires to be born to exist. No, this is just referring to Jesus is the type that we are going to be like in the new creation. He's the first in the new creation that we are going to be like in nature. And why does, like, why does the writer refer to Jesus being the firstborn? It's to make the reader acknowledge that Jesus is preeminent, his firstness and his glory. Our heart's desire is to look at him with awe. If we really understand what it means by Jesus to be firstborn, we're supposed to look at him with awe and wonder and worship him and follow him intensely. And elsewhere in this verse, he says, and let all God's angels worship him. What's the big deal about saying that God's angels worship Jesus? We see elsewhere in scripture, um, we recently had Christmas. We saw in Luke 1, what happened when the angels declared the good news that Jesus was to be born to shepherds. These are shepherds who are seasoned tradesmen who had to deal with ferocious wolves and lions and had to defend their sheep from them. These are people not easily terrified by vicious animals. And yet even these seasoned professionals get terrified when angels come to them and say, good news, the saviour is to be born in Bethlehem today. These angels are terrifying. If that wasn't enough, um, it was a Zechariah, a person described as godly, and even Zechariah was disciplined by an angel for disbelieving because awesome news came to him. Isaiah 6, when the, arguably the greatest prophet that ever existed, Isaiah, um, he was in the midst of angels, and even he was absolutely blown away by the presence of these angels. Angels are a phenomenal presence in the scriptures, but even they, in this passage, will worship Jesus. Revelation, one day all the angels in the new creation will crowd around Jesus and worship him. This is how glorious Jesus is. He is worthy of worship of creatures even as glorious as the angels. Another aspect of Christ's sonship is the kingdom of Christ. If we have a look at verse 7 and verse 8, of the angels he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. This is referring and alluding to Psalm 104 and Psalm 45. Those Psalms are explaining the eternal rule of Christ, God in Christ, ruling forever. Jesus is king, but angels are merely God's servants and creatures that God controls. There is no comparison. Angels do not 
and were never given a kingdom anywhere in the Bible. And that's because they are not kings, but God's servants sent to do his bidding to look after the saints, as it says later on in in the passage. Angels, and now verse 8. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Jesus is clearly referred to here as God, who is on his throne forever. Only kings sit on thrones, but whereas human kings only have temporal reigns, Jesus' reign is eternal. What's the quality of Jesus' rule and reign? What sort of kingdom does Jesus preside over? Many in today's society get very suspicious and actually antagonistic to the idea of kingdoms, rules and reigns. And you can't blame them. When people in power and authority abuse or misuse their power for their own ends, you can't, you can't be surprised when people get suspicious or look down upon kingdoms and kings and rulers and authorities. But... Jesus is different. Here you see the kind of quality of Jesus' reign and rule. Jesus has loved righteousness and hated wickedness. He is not like all the other rulers we are disappointed in and cynical over. His rule and reign is one where he champions and rewards righteousness and defeats and punishes wickedness. Imagine a king like that. If we had a ruler that only ever upheld good... And all evil would be punished and done away with. We would want to be in that kingdom. We would want to live in there forever. There would be joy because righteousness only exists. And all other evil is destroyed. It won't exist during this lifetime. But one day it will. In Christ's new kingdom, in the new creation. But that is Christ's kingdom and an aspect of his sonship. Moving on to verse 10. And... Another aspect of Jesus' unique sonship is his eternality, his everlastingness. Verse 10, it says, And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. This is another reason the writer uses to explain why he is far more superior and exceeds all angels. Angels are created beings. They needed God to create them to exist. They have a beginning. But here it says that Jesus laid the foundations of the earth. He created absolutely everything that exists. And he did that because he was at the beginning when nothing else existed. Who else can we say that of except God alone? Here, it's very clear. It says, and you, Lord, this is still referring to Jesus, the Son, in the context of the passage. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. It's Jesus who created the earth from the beginning. And that is because of his sonship, his eternality. What are angels equivalent? Like, were angels around at the beginning, before the beginning of the universe? Were they around to make the earth? Of course not. It's only Christ. And so the question is, if it's only Christ at the beginning of the earth, creating the worlds, then why, are we, why is anyone investing in energy pursuing anything else other than Christ. He alone is God and the creator. And to invest any other, other time and devotion into created beings is a complete waste of time. Verse 11 and 12. Everything else in the universe will perish. You see here, 
The heaven, this is referring to the heavens and the earth that Jesus made. They all perish, but Christ, you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Why do we make such a big deal about something that the scriptures say will be destroyed eventually? I don't know what it is in your life that you're paying so much attention to, whether it's your career, your relationships, something. Jesus says, or the passage here says, that will go away, and personally, will, Jesus will personally see to it that it ends. But Jesus will remain forever. His kingdom remains forever. His rule and reign remains forever. Why would we spend so much time devoting our worship and our time and our energy in anything else apart from Jesus when only Jesus will last forever and everything else will be personally shut down by Jesus? It makes no sense. And in verse 12b, this is all about Jesus' eternity, his foreverness. Jesus is immutable. You are the same and your years will have no end. Everything else changes. We would love, and certainly the people back in the time of the early church would have loved for things to be good and the same. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Because of the fall, we always suffer frustrations. Things always change for the worse, and we always get left frustrated. But the beautiful thing about Jesus is he never changes. His character, his compassion, his nature, his love for you, his commitment, that never changes. And so time and events will never change who Jesus is. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he will be Lord forever. And those of you who are confessing Jesus as Lord will never get disappointed because Jesus is forever. So that's the eternality of Christ in terms of his sonship. Now the inheritance of Christ, what belongs to Christ as the Son. Verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is a reference to Psalm 110, another messianic psalm, another psalm that God inspired in the Old Testament to predict the coming of God's chosen king in the future. It's a glorious psalm that describes how great this king is who will trample over all his enemies. His rule and his reign is guaranteed here. God says to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It is an inevitability that God's enemies will be under his feet. They will be defeated. They will be in full submission to him. And they will all be given to Jesus. Jesus is the inheritor of the new earths and the new heavens and the new earth. He will be the one who is reigning over all things in a new creation. God the Father has personally promised that all things will be under his feet. He will be the ruler of all things. Only Jesus has total dominion over his enemies. And it doesn't matter who his enemies are. It doesn't matter how strong they are. I don't know who you respect or who you fear most in this world. No matter how big they are, how powerful they are, how influential they are, if they are to Christ's enemies and oppose him, they will one day be under his feet. No question about it. So, why should we devote so much time and attention to other things? Is it your boss that you're fearing? Is, is it... Is he, are you worried that he's not going to give you your career promotion? Is it a close friend that you're afraid of losing? 
Well, if they're opposed to Christ, you don't need to fear them. They will one day be subject to Christ. You only need to fear and to pay attention to Christ because one day all things will be under his feet and he will rule and reign forever. And so, although this passage specifically talks about angels, but you could put anything else in the category of angels. The point is this. What are angels or what are people? What are other created things? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? They are merely servants whom God is using for his own purposes. It doesn't matter what it is in the world that you're fearing or that will turn you away from Christ. They are to be used by God for the sake of God's people for their salvation. God is in control of all of them. And Jesus is the son to whom we are to be concerned with. So those are the aspects of God's, uh, Jesus' sonship. We talked about his unique relationship to the Father. We talked about his worthiness to be worshipped. No one else in the Bible is to be worshipped except God alone. And yet Jesus is to be worshipped. We talked about Jesus' rule and reign, his kingdom, how he rules in a just fashion forever. We talked about his foreverness, his eternality, his unchangeability. He will be the same forever. Others won't. And we talked about his inheritance, the future that is promised for Christ and for all those in him. There's no one else that this is promised to. Nothing else will have the rule and reign. Nothing else will have God's promises in terms of guaranteeing such a wonderful blessing in the future. And so how do we apply today's passage to our lives? Well, first, we just have to behold the sun. You've been told magnificent truths about God. You have been told magnificent truths about his son by the word of God, which never errs. And we are to meditate on these words, these truths, and exalt Jesus in our minds. That is the purpose of these words. We are to know that Jesus is high and glorious. And we are to keep on focusing on that. We are to have a high opinion of Jesus, always. And not to allow any lowly force of Jesus come into our minds. We need to acknowledge and confess that Jesus alone is God's son. And the whole purpose of the book is to show that Jesus is superior to anything else. No one else can compare to Jesus. This means denying that anyone else has equal knowledge or intimate relationship with God the Father. No one loves and is is cherished more by God the Father than Jesus. And no one cherishes more and loves the Father except Jesus. No one else is given the glory or worshipped than Jesus alone. And what that means is that when people challenge you saying that, are you saying that Jesus is the only way, that all other religions are wrong when when, when it comes to God? Yes. Only Jesus can enable people to know God. Only Jesus knows God deeply for people to come to God. Does it mean all other lifestyles and commitments that people make to try and get themselves right with God or to atone for their own sins are futile because they do not come through Christ? Yes, only Jesus can make people know God and to be forgiven. All other ways are futile. Are all other forms of Christianity which don't fully commit and rely on the personal work of Jesus Christ to get to know God? Yes, they are all futile because they do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as the Son. Do not lose your confidence in Christ. 
Jesus alone knows God. And it's only by him that we get access to God and know him as our father. Point three of application. If you're not a Christian, you need to be reminded about who you're making your enemy and what you're missing out on. You are attempting, if you are opposed to God, to front up to God's chosen king. Just seen in this passage, the fate of those who would rebel against God. What do you think will be the end result when a mere creature fronts up to the almighty, righteous, eternal creator God? What's the outcome? The outcome is you'll be finished. The idea that any human being thinks they're big enough or they're strong enough to rebel against God and to resist him is a ludicrous idea. How can anyone ever face up to God? So if you're opposed to Jesus today, know that you're in a losing battle and it's a deadly destruction at the end. If you're opposed to Jesus, you'll face him one day as your judge. You'll have to account for your sins. And if you have betrayed his laws, you'll be seen as an enemy and you'll be sent into judgment forever. It is a bad end. And so the command of scripture is to repent now and believe in Jesus whilst you have the time. Do not make Jesus your enemy. Make him your king. Make him your friend. Be on the right side of the mighty and righteous rule of Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, be reminded of the truths in scripture that are true about Jesus. Since Jesus is all that scripture says he is, and so much more, he is God's eternal son. He is God's king. He is to inherit the kingdom forever. He will never change. All glory and worship will go to him. If that's true, why are we ashamed of him? Why would we live for anything else? Why would we spend our time for anything else other than Jesus? Are you being mocked at work for being a Christian? Are you tempted to slide away from him because you're facing ridicule? Is there a particular sin that you're enjoying? Is there a sin that you know that Jesus says no, but you really want to do, and you're in a struggle? If Jesus is who scripture says he is, then how can it be conceivably that you would leave Jesus behind and go for that sin? Ditch the sin. Jesus is worth it. He is glorious. If you're suffering, particularly if you're a Christian, are you going to ditch Jesus? Are you going to ditch the one who is king of kings, lord of lords? Are you going to ditch the one who lasts forever and has the kingdom at his hands? No, that makes no sense. And no, at the time, if you're really suffering, you may question God's goodness. But Jesus is God's son. Why would you ever turn your back on him? No, if you're a Christian, be proud of Jesus. Seek to know him more. And ask God to magnify him more in your heart. That you might see him as he truly is. In all his magisterial glory. That you may know how great and awesome Jesus is. And that this awesome and great king can be your friend and your brother who saves you. Why would we ever turn away from Jesus? He is the son of God who will reign forever.